the title of the sermon today is Jesus Gives You Peace in a World of Tribulation. Jesus Gives You Peace in a World of Tribulation. And this title speaks to two very true things. One, that we live in a world of many trials and many tribulations. We live in a world of suffering and pain and of darkness and all the more as God's people around the world. We are uh, berated and persecuted and maligned in various ways. I've said this before, but John Owen kind of famously said that the devil attacks the church in one of two ways, through force or through fraud. Through force or fraud. And where he can, he will send... uh, attackers and persecutors to burn your church buildings down, to, uh, to stone you, to burn you at the stake, to cut off your heads, to crucify you in a mocking way after Christ. And all these things have and do happen in the world. And the devil will seek to drive you out of the church through force. Or sometimes it's political laws that keep you from meeting and force the church to go underground, as is the case, for example, in Iran or in China uh, in other, and in maybe in strange ways, too, even in the West in these days. So the devil will use force. And at other times, he'll use fraud. He'll send false teachers, as the Paul would say, call, wolves from among the elders would come in and seek to devour the flock. Paul gave that warning to the Ephesian elders, for example. And so Satan will try to destroy the church by twisting doctrine and twisting the word. And we see churches that have caved to the cultural cultural demands of the day. And we'll just kind of pick and choose from the Bible what we think the culture will find acceptable. And the devil succeeds through fraud. And then those very same people then turn on Christians and churches and pastors and ministers who seek to be faithful to the word. And we'll see that in our text this morning. So we live in a world of tribulation as the people of God through force and fraud. And so the title speaks to that. And the title also speaks to the second very true thing that Jesus gives us peace for living within that world of tribulation. Jesus gives us peace. And that's what he's doing in this text as he's preparing to leave his disciples and go to the cross. He wants to leave them with peace. You know, as we've been looking at this part of John, this, the, this farewell speech that he's given, the farewell discourse the disciples are worried and they're afraid. And, and I shared before that it's like a, a child who, who, who panics when their mom or dad is going to work or going to run an errand. And they're like, don't leave. And I remember each of our kids kind of reached that stage or that rare time when Deborah and I could go on a date. They would just cling, don't go. You know, and that's how the disciples were feeling. And I think we would feel the same way if Jesus was here in person and he said, I'm leaving and there's going to be a lot of trouble when I go. Don't go, Lord. 
But Jesus is our loving brother and shepherd and Lord is uh, giving us reason to have peace even while he's gone as he gave to the disciples and gives to us as well. So Jesus uh, tells his disciples four encouraging uh, statements or he gives them four encouragements, we could put it that way, while he leaves them in a world of tribulation. So we're going to look at those four encouragements this morning at the end of John 15 and through John chapter 16. So first, Jesus gives us peace in a world of tribulation by telling us that, number one, the world hates you for a reason. The world hates you for a reason. Now, how is that a peace-giving encouragement? We're going to, we'll unpack this now. But number one, the world hates you for a reason. He gives actually four rationales for this, for this statement that the world hates you for a reason. And the first one, as we see in verse 19, is Jesus says, Because I chose you out of the world. Because I chose you out of the world. He says in verse 19, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And Jesus doesn't fully expound the world's rationale for hating us because God chose us, whether it's jealousy or anger or, or hatred or um, bitterness or, or anything like that. But Jesus roots that the world's hatred and ire against the church on election, on election. He said, I chose you, and therefore the world hates you. And that's why this is an encouraging statement, because when we are persecuted as the church of Jesus Christ, and people hate us for it and malign us for it, it's a great sign that God has actually chosen you. So actually, persecution is this wonderful encouragement that we are God's people, that we are his. And we don't have to doubt that. For if we were of the world, the world would love us. I was telling uh, William came with me to church today to help me set up, and we were, we were talking on the way over and uh, we, were just, we were talking about how, uh, you know, it actually would be a really scary thing if we, I got up and preached on the Lord's Day and we gathered as God's people on the Lord's Day and the whole like city flocked to us and said, this is wonderful what you're doing. Because if the world loves us, it's a sign that we are not of God. We are not of God. Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And in relationship to that, he goes on in verse 20 and tells his disciples, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So this is what you sign up for as a Christian. Persecution. But at the same time, 
the great encouragement is that we actually didn't sign up at all for it. We were chosen for it by God. And so even the world's hatred becomes an encouragement to us. Under this banner of the world hates you for a reason, Jesus gives another rationale as well, a second rationale, uh, because Psalms 35 and 69 had to be fulfilled. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. Jesus says in verse 25, But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. And that uh, that phrase, they hated me without a cause, is found both in Psalm 35 and Psalm 69. And Peter read Psalm 69 for us today before the message. And you saw there the psalmist crying out for mercy. And in that psalm, actually, the psalmist confesses his own sin and his own guilt and still pleads for grace from God. But what we see here in the Gospels is how Jesus actually redeems the psalmist and takes on the suffering of the psalmist. And that actually, as we learn from the Gospel writers, Jesus is the focus of the psalms as he takes on the sins of the psalm writers and he represents God's people, takes on the humiliations of his people and mediates their forgiveness by his own blood and his own suffering. And so the world's hatred must come because the scriptures must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. And that's why we can sing the Psalms together, because they are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And further than that, we can sing them for ourselves as well, because we are united to Christ in his death, in his resurrection, in his humiliations, and in his glories. We are united with him in those things. And so as they hated him without a cause, they hate us without a cause as well. Under this banner of the world hates you for a reason, Jesus gives a third rationale. He says, because you and the Spirit must bear witness. You and the Spirit must bear witness. In verses 26 and 27, he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. The church father, I believe it was Tertullian, said that the the blood of the martyrs is the uh, lifeblood of the church. Something to that effect. I didn't look it up beforehand. I'm speaking from memory here. But one of the greatest witnesses of church history is that persecution spreads the gospel. We, we saw it in Acts. We see it in the early church. It was the witness of God's people at the martyr stake, being devoured by animals in the gladiatorial arena, or fighting with gladiators, being told, 
renounce Christ, worship the Roman pantheon of gods, worship Caesar, or we will kill you. It was their bold and indefatigable witness and courage before the persecutors that spread the church far and wide in the Roman Empire and indeed eventually overturned the Roman Empire. And Jesus is telling you, you're in this world of tribulation and that is necessary because by it, both you and the Spirit will bear witness to the truth. Bear witness to the truth. And we see, uh, again, I've mentioned places like China and uh, places like Iran and other places in the Middle East. The underground church is growing and multiplying like wildfire under the persecution and those who would seek to snuff it out. But these things are necessary for the glory of Christ and for the salvation of his people and the spread of the gospel to the four corners of the earth. So under this banner of the world hates you for a reason, Jesus gives one more, one fourth encouragement here as well, a rationale for this. And it's because the world is religiously perverse. The world hates you for a reason, and this fourth reason is because the world is religiously perverse. The world thinks it can carve out its own way to God, how to worship God, how to to please God through man-made forms of worship, whether it's carving an idol uh, as it is, whether it's coming with a new philosophy to find God, as the Greeks and the Romans sought to do, or adding your own oral law on top of God's word as the Jews sought to do. And interestingly enough here, the lion's share of the persecution that the apostles faced was not at first from the Romans, but was from the Jews themselves. And look here what Jesus says in chapter 16, verse 2. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming whenever, when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Some of the worst persecution that the reformers faced, for example, William Tyndale, who was burned at the stake, who uh, is still responsible for about 75% of the wording in our English Bibles today, was burned at the stake. He was betrayed by Christians, as Christians, I should put in quotations. And so many, like the Oxford martyrs, for example, in the English Reformation were put and burned to the stake because they were transmitting copies of Tyndale's Bible, which was actually a good translation from the Greek and the Hebrew, which showed that actually the, the Latin Vulgate had many errors, which led to Roman Catholic doctrinal errors and all sorts of things. And in places like the East today, in the Middle East, Muslims put Christians to death because they think they're doing God a favor by doing that. 
liberals will malign, as it were, quote-unquote, fundamentals, and they think they're doing God a favor for doing it. And we will be persecuted because the world is religiously perverse. And by us just simply saying, we worship by the Word of God. The Word of God is our supreme authority. Uh, Religious clerics the world over hate us for it as well. And it's a sad truth. So Jesus gives us peace, my friends, an encouragement by telling us that the world hates us for a reason. So that when we're persecuted, it's not by accident. It's not random. It, it didn't slip God's mind and go, oh, I didn't think about that. Jesus isn't going, oh, I didn't think if I left them, they're going to be in trouble. He, he ironically and strangely gives us encouragement. There's something remarkably encouraging to know that if you're suffering, it's for a good cause. It's not for a random cause. It's not because there's something wrong with you. Or you're not, you're not contextualizing enough to the world. Uh, it's because God has ordained it to be this way. And it's a sign that you are his. So that's the first encouragement that Jesus gives us. The world hates you for a reason. The second thing he tells us, the second encouragement, number two, he says, I must leave so the Spirit can do his work. I must leave so the Spirit can do his work. Jesus knows that his leaving is necessary. That in the, He doesn't give us the full rationale for it, but in the providence of God, in God's plan, Jesus would come, would do the work of redemption he was called to do and ascend back to the Father. And at that time, the Spirit would be poured out on God's people. The great Old Testament prophecies would come to pass. And that would be the way in which Jesus would redeem his people, that the word would go to the ends of the earth by the Spirit coming upon us and by the full giving of the word of God Uh, and so on and so forth. When we think about the Spirit's work in uh, theological terms, we talk about the Spirit uh, being the one who applies redemption. The Spirit applies redemption. The Father plans redemption. The Christ, the Son, accomplishes redemption. And the Spirit applies redemption. We also see related to that work, part of the redeeming, uh, part of the redeeming work, as well as part of the uh, the additional work the Spirit would do. We see in verse eight that the Spirit's work is to convict the world, is to convict the world. Jesus says in verse eight, and when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus had to go to the Father in order that the Spirit would do his work to convict the world of sin. He had to go to the Father 
because the Spirit had to basically bear witness that the ruler of this world is damned, that his days are numbered, that Satan's days are numbered. He had to go to the Father in order to display the righteous vindication of his atonement for us. So there's so much theology of the Spirit we find right packed into these verses concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because they go to the Father, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And Jesus also goes to the Father, we see in verse 13, in order to guide the apostles. In verse 13, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And here we have a little window into how Jesus or how how God through Christ and the Spirit would complete the written revelation of his will, the word of God, the New Testament, that he would guide these apostles into writing and declaring the whole counsel of God for man and for salvation. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So we can have peace knowing that Jesus' absence is for a very good purpose. We've seen it bears witness to our election. That's why the world hates us. And it bears witness to the need, the necessity of the Spirit to do His work in applying redemption and completing Scripture and convicting the world. A third encouragement that Jesus gives us is He says, I will turn your sorrow into joy. I will turn your sorrow into joy. So while Jesus is leaving, He will not leave us to put on sackcloth and ashes and just wear black all the time and be mournful. He's going to turn our sorrow into joy. And he, in fact, did do that for his apostles, his disciples, and he does that for us now as well. And he will do it in a greater measure uh, when he returns. So let's look at this briefly. Uh, In verse 16, Jesus says that in a little while you will see me again. So Jesus is going away, and it's just like a parent saying, I'm not going to be gone long. I just got to run to the grocery store. Or mom and dad are just going on a quick date. We'll be back in a couple hours. It's all going to be okay. And Jesus tells the disciples, while I'm going away, in a little while, in verse 16, in a little while you will see me no longer. And again, in a little while you will see me. And they don't know it yet, but Jesus is talking about in While I'm going to the cross in three days' time, I will rise again, and you will see me again. Just a little while, you're going to see me. Don't worry. Just think of the the antiquity of the world, however old it is in God's will. And we argue about that scientifically. But however old the world is, and and the fact that uh, God planned our redemption before the foundation of the world, the entire eternal plan revolves 
and revolved around this three-day period of Jesus' death, his burial, his remaining under the power of death, which is what we mean when we say descended into hell in the confession, and then his rising again on the third day. The whole eternal plan centered around this little, this little while, this little moment. So Jesus is saying, don't worry. A little while you're going to see me. Just a little while I will return. And in the same way, we have that now today. Jesus goes to the Father to do this work. And what to us feels like an eternity. Like, Lord, will you ever come back? Or maybe you've prayed, Lord, would you just return? (laughs) I'm tired of this world. (laughs) I'm tired of this. Lord, would you just return? I'm sure we've all, I know we've all felt that way at one time or the other. In God's, from God's perspective, this is a blink of an eye. You know, one day is like a thousand years. In a little while, you will see me again. It's not going to be long. So there's joy in that for us. There's joy in that. Even in the midst of sorrow, in verse 22, Jesus says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. No one will take that joy from you. I think this is what Paul means when he says, We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We live with that tension as Christians of feeling the sorrow that comes from the absence uh, of seeing and beholding our Savior face to face. That, that sorrow that comes from the absence of being God's people scattered throughout the, the world. That sorrow that comes from the death of beloved um, friends and family members and, and, and church family members. We We don't want to be parted and yet there's this lasting joy that nobody can take that the devil cannot snuff out he cannot blow out that candle it keeps burning i will turn your sorrow into joy and how much better do we have it friends that we can see from this side of the cross what the disciples couldn't see in this moment and so we can have joy even in the midst of this world of tribulation Let's look finally at a fourth encouragement. So we've, we've seen three things so far. Jesus has said, the world hates you for a reason. Secondly, he said, I must leave so the Spirit can do his work. Third, he said, I will turn your sorrow into joy. And now fourthly, he gives us one last encouragement. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. The world dominates this passage of Scripture. It's, the, the world is mentioned 14 times in this text. It's a good indicator that this is kind of what this text is about. So last week as Peter preached from the opening part of John 15, I am the vine, we looked at uh, the disciples' relationship to Jesus, abiding in him into the church, loving one another. And this week we're looking at our relationship to the world. Jesus turns, how do disciples understand their place in this world of tribulation? 
And it's one where we need peace and encouragement, which is what Jesus is doing here in, in the, 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 uh, the death knell or the last nail in the coffin of despair to, to put that out of our minds forever as Christians is this awesome world-changing truth that Jesus has overcome the world. He's already defeated. He is Christ the victor. And we can see two things here. First, in verse 32, Jesus says, My death will leave you terrified. Okay? So he's talking to his disciples here. My death is going to leave you terrified. Don't worry, we'll get to good news in a moment. But look what he says in in verse 32. He says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. And... uh, and here, of course, the disciples are like, yeah, we'll go with you, Lord. Peter's like, yeah, I'll die for you. I'll lay my life. Really? You know, last, you know, earlier in John, he says, you're going to betray me three times. You're going to deny me three times. And here, all of his disciples are going to be scattered. I think one of, the, one of the gospels even says one of them just runs off naked. Like the, the clo- he's so terrified, he runs, his clothes fall off while he's running away. You're going to be terrified. And you're going to leave me alone. But then the good news comes in verse 33. Where he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. While Jesus will be abandoned at the cross, even by his closest friends. And while we can, if we look at our own lives, have found times when we have embarrassingly abandoned Christ in moments where we should have bore witness to him. Jesus is never alone because the Father is with him. And his victory does not depend on us, (laughs) which is very good news. Very good news. Very good news. Indeed, what he says here, friends, um, or what he implies, I should say, is that the proof of our victory over the world is Jesus' victory over the world. And that's the greatest encouragement of all. And that's the greatest reason that we can have peace. Despite our fickleness and our fallenness, and the terror that we at times feel and may feel in the future at the tribulation that surrounds us, Jesus has already done the work and has overcome the world and that by our union with him, his victory becomes our victory. And that's the ultimate grounds for peace in a world of tribulation. So in this Christmas time, we celebrate Jesus becoming uh, a cute little baby as it's viewed in, in, from the eyes of the world and marketers making lots of money on these holidays and doing all these things. But this cute little baby was born, as it's said, to die, to condemn the devil, to condemn all of the 
false teachers and religious clerics who were perverting the truth. To condemn every enemy, the last enemy being death itself. And that our victory, friends, is bound in his victory. And his victory has already taken place. As the Spirit declared his righteousness as Jesus was raised from the grave. So Jesus came as the peace child. And most of the world, rather than accepting that peace, sought to overtake him. And John begins the gospel that way. That the, he came into the darkness, but the darkness had not overcome him. And he came to his own, and his own received him not. And yet, despite all of the attempts of this world filled with tribulation and darkness, despite all of the world's attempts, we have a sure and amazing and mighty victory in Christ that cannot be quenched, cannot be stopped by the world. Their doom is already sealed by the same blood that saves you and me who believe. So as you go home, as you prepare for a new year, as you think about what the Lord has ordained for you in the year ahead, I encourage you and charge you to review this chapter. Review your notes of what Jesus said to us today, that you will have peace come what may. And that whether in good times or hard times, you will feel the peace of Christ that causes the world to drop its jaw and to marvel and to have that kind of peace that topples pagan nations and spreads the gospel to the ends of the earth. So with that good news, let us pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this chapter. And in some ways, we're like, I don't want to hear it because it tells us that we're going to keep suffering. But at the same time, I thank you for the, just the, the this tremendous just foundation of peace that you give us through these words of the reason why we're hated, of the necessity of the Spirit to do His work, that you do turn our sorrow into joy, and you will in fullness when you return, and that our ultimate ground for peace is that our victory is sealed in Jesus' victory. And so I pray for my friends here today, that you would fill their hearts with a heavenly peace that surpasses all understanding and that by that peace that Jesus gives, you would guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in the name of our victorious Lord. Amen.